Welcome to Good Game, your no BS insights for crypto founders. Dex aggregators or Uniswap, their front end already enables intent. So on Uniswap, you can specify how much slippage. To me, this is a pretty okay solution to my intent. What is exactly the problem that we're, we're trying to solve with this intent architecture? Like, what is a specific problem that we haven't solved that can be solved? To me, it's always the decentralization problem. Like, you can do everything in a centralized way if you wanted to, right? Like, you can go on centralized exchanges, you do your limit orders there, right? But the reason why we're doing this on the blockchain is because we all share this vision of decentralization. And when you submit a, a transaction on Uniswap, the inputting your order actually goes through the Uniswap solver router that decides how to split your order into Uniswap pools. In a sense, like that's that's like a tiny version of an intent architecture. And it is a centralizing point. You're sending all the orders to the Uniswap router API first, and then it tells you the transaction that you're going to be submitting to the blockchain. Looking for your next startup idea in crypto? Check out our request for startups list and get inspired at alliance.xyz forward slash ideas. Welcome to Good Game. Today, we're going to be talking about intents. Recently, Anoma announced their round and that had us like digging deeper about, you know, what is intent-based transactions versus just transactions just generally. And so maybe the question they'll ask, what are intents? We're also joined by David, who uh, just joined Alliance as one of our researchers. And so maybe, David, if you want to do a quick introduction and then talk about what intents are, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited to join Alliance. It's been a very fun few weeks, and I'm very happy to be diving deep into crypto topics. Uh, in fact, I've been doing this part-time for many, many years. Some people that know me from the internet, uh, know that I've been working at Two Sigma at first and then uh, did a startup in AI. I do have a claim to fame with lots of views uh, with my brother, uh, Joe Matek. Uh, so hopefully I'll... I can His videos are great. In. Yeah, thank you for that. Hopefully I can pull in some viewers to, to the GG podcast. Um, f fun fact, uh, David is a, a childhood... A uh, friend of mine. I've known David for at least twenty years, if not more. At least twenty years. And also, I think in hindsight, David played a pivotal role in my crypto career because it was the time when I built true conviction in Bitcoin. When I saw that YouTube video by Andreas Antonopoulos, everyone should know Andreas. If you don't yeah. know him, look him up. He was we'll, we'll one of the most video. important people in the early days. He's been much, much less vocal these days. He's less vocal these days, that's right. But he was the, the, one of the first evangelists for, for Bitcoin in the 2013-2014 era. And David sent me that video. And that video was what convinced me to, to build real conviction in, in Bitcoin. Yeah, it definitely took a while. We had lots of late night chats. You know, Back then, we were on Gchat. I still have like logs from the back then. <laughs> Same. So, David, what are intents? Is it just a, a marketing buzzword, like of the many trends that we see in crypto? Is this something that our viewers should actually care about? And where do you think the space is going to go? Yeah, those are uh, that's a lot of many many questions to yes. answer. But I guess we'll unpack all of this. Yep. So, from what I what I saw, intents is a new word. It does get easily confused with transactions. It gets easily confused with limit orders. A lot of people do seem to think that it's a, it's a buzzword. And by the end, I think I want to argue that even though it is just a new word, it's kind of important to introduce new words to bring people together to work on hard problems. And, and we'll see that ultimately the word is not what's important. It's the problems that, that are getting solved. So right now, the vibe definition of intents is that the difference between a transaction and intent is that transactions are imperative. They tell you how to change state in the VM, like very precisely. You can run it, either uh, is valid or invalid, and the clients can decide immediately and, and like they can just claim your, your, your gas fee, right? What's a good example of this? Of a, of a transaction? Yeah, just a, a typical transaction, just like 
doing something on Uniswap as an example. Yeah. Is, yeah. Doing something on Uniswap, like when you click sign a transaction, like every time you click sign a transaction and you send it over to a node, that's a transaction. It's either going to fail or it's going to do the state changes on the EVM, right? So that's actually a good point, actually, David, like, because anything before that is not transaction, right? Anything before sign transaction is not a transaction. It's like exactly as a moon when you click submit to a transaction, it is a transaction at this point, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a very clear path from a transaction to a state change. Like it gets compiled, you know, you you compile it with the the contracts and it becomes like opcodes and it gets run by the VM, right? So that's a transaction. And intents right now are instead of specifying like how to run the VM, they specify what's ultimately what's the state change that's desired. They specify what's what's the state change that's desired, so it's declarative, but it doesn't specify how to get there, right? So intents require somebody like a solver to tell you how that intent should be uh, executed. So maybe digging deeper into the intents. So intents are just a bunch of uh, execution parameters that you want to be executed, with some constraints, right? So what would be an, like a very good example of this that we use today? So if you've ever used Dex Aggregator, recently you sign something that's like, let's say that, that's gasless, right? You sign a, some sort of, a, of transaction, but it's not being sent to a client immediately. So they basically help you uh, kind of refine what, what you want to do with your intent and you kind of send it over and then you hope that it gets solved and like matched correctly and in your favor so that ultimately it gets turned into a transaction. So that's like a very common example. So it's um, an example is like if you're using Matcha, you could put, I want to buy one ETH and this is the most I'll pay for it. And then you hit the transaction. And, then, and what you would hope is that someone on the other side, whether it's an off-chain market maker or if there's liquidity, on some AMM pools that is able to execute that transaction based on the constraints or limit orders that you put in to matcha. Is that like the way to think about it? Right. Right. But I think actually intents can go bigger than that. Yeah. Like now that's like I think David described what we do now as that can be classified as intents. But I mm-hmm. think the mark the market for the intent or that the word intent was described to actually describe even more general behavior. Like you can come and say, I have some ETH I want to transform this ETH to USDC at the highest possible value. I want to get the most USDC. I don't care actually if I can do it now or I can do it within the next hour or I can do it over a day or a week. But the goal here is to get me the most, the maximum ETH. So you can actually do something as general as this. And you can even go even wilder. You say, I don't care if you give this, this ETH me on ETH mainnet or optimism or Arbitrum. I don't care where's the venue. Like, I don't care at all, but just give me the most <laughs> amount of USDC. Uh-huh. So I think intents can actually go bigger and describe really, really like general behaviors that cannot be executed today. Right. Yeah. Ultimately, they, they describe a state change on the VM, right? Or like the blockchains are ultimately a data availability solution, right? So if you can just specify like the, the end result and have somebody give you the, the best result as possible. That's like a great user experience. And it's like a user experience abstraction from the current way of doing things. Right. And the more you can like throw away constraints, the better execution you would be able to get on your intent. So the reason why I say that is like a transaction is like, I want to swap 100 ETH to a certain amount of USDC on Uniswap in this specific pool, right? That would be like a, a transaction. Mm-hmm. And an intent would, you know, you can start throwing away things like, okay, where do I actually want to swap that? Like, I don't care if it's Uniswap or other things. I don't need it to be now. I just want it to be like in the next 30 minutes or something like that. I still want to clarify this. I understand at a high level, but there's one little thing that really bugs me. So David, what you described Sounds like a limit order to me. So I want to buy, let's say, five ETH at a maximum price 
of like $1,800. The food that what you just described is something very different. Even if they sound similar, it's very different. What you described is, I want to get the, as much ETH as possible. The thing that you're describing, the outcome of that is stochastic, it's probabilistic, right? You, you don't know exactly what we're going to get. It's, it's an optimization problem for you know, whoever executes the, the, the transaction, and you don't know exactly what you're going to get. But in the case of David, the outcome is not probabilistic. The, the outcome is deterministic. If this price doesn't exist, I won't get it. But if this price does exist, I will get it at this precise price. Okay, uh, it's it's actually the same thing, right? So, in traditional market, like when you when you put a when you put a market order, right? It's like, okay, just give me the best price. I'm just gonna buy like whatever you want to buy, right? But a limit order is on traditional markets is the same thing, right? You put a limit order past the current price of the current spot price. It's that that's like technically. A market order because it's you expect it to be filled immediately and it gets filled at the best price possible and that's insured by the exchange like matching things in the right order right like when you say when you give a limit order that's past the market in traditional markets you don't automatically get like the worst price right you get the market price in DeFi, if you submit a limit order that's past the spot price and you submit that order to, let's say, to searcher, and that searcher is the only person that has your limit order, he's going to make sure that you're going to get the worst possible price. <laughs> right? Yep. And where intents are getting at is to, ins- like, to replicate the, the ability of a marketplace, like a traditional marketplace, where you, you can submit your order into the wild and then let competition take care of to the execution for you so that you get a better price than the, the worst limit price that you've set up initially. Was that uh, kind of roundabout? <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah, a good yeah. way to explain it. I can actually like explain what I mean by having that. By the way, you today when you do access change on Uniswap, you are executing an intent. And here is how your intent is to get the maximum mm-hmm. or the best exchange rate possible. And Uniswap front end gives you a minimum, right? Say your transaction will fail if it gets through a, below this minimum. But it doesn't give you a maximum, which means that if you get more money, you will be happy taking it, right? And so you are kind of doing this intent. I think what that word intent means that you can actually add more demands or more conditions or more wishes, let's say. Uh, actually, like I, ter- I prefer the term that Suave uses, which is preferences. As a user, you can say, I prefer to have my the USDC that I get from the ETH swap on Ethereum. But if you can give me more on Polygon, I am fine with it. Like you can actually make a very complex preference. And this is what make it a, a, like a nice intent. I think intents that are not well defined will be vague and will actually subject the user to a worse user experience. But this is, I would say the side, the backside or the flip side of intents that intents can actually be really exploited to give you like shitty response if you don't define it well. But again, this is what is the counter side of, uh, of the argument of intents. I think I understand intents mm-hmm. in the examples, but why is it a big deal? Why is everyone in the Ethereum community talking about it? Why should our audience care? So here's a, a good example I want to give before I pass it off to David or, or Fuda. But I was recently listening to um, Zaki's talk Zaki is one of the uh, core contributors at, at Cosmos. And there was a, a research day that was held in New York somewhere. And Zaki only spoke for nine minutes. And all he said was, today, like if you think about getting millions of users into crypto, it's going to be incredibly hard. No one is going to, one, use MetaMask or transact from one bridge to another or swaps or all of these like elements are confusing. He also said like, you know, if your assets get stuck in one like chain to another, like, you know, user, it's just going to be too hard for users to actually use the product. Right. And so he said, like, imagine if a user comes into crypto and all they do is express what they want, right. Very intuitively. And the product will then give them what they want, like very simply without having to execute any transactions, MetaMask, et cetera. Similar to like what we do in web two, right? Like you, you go onto Google and you hit search and you get the results. And uh, he made those types of examples because what Intense could ultimately do is take all of the difficulties and abstract away all the transactions 
in the background and give the user the best possible outcome based on what they're looking for in crypto. And so there's like an order of magnitude experience upgrade from a UI UX perspective, and then also from an onboarding perspective. So it was just an interesting element I wanted to add, but it was a, it was a, it was a pretty good talk. But yeah, curious what your thoughts on that, David Fuda. I will follow on this actually thread. I yeah. think Zach's point is on point here. Like, yes, intents can make it user easier for mainstream users who are not crypto native to come to crypto. Yeah. But I will argue actually intent can make even our life as crypto native folks easier, right? Yeah. Imagine that you want you have all your funds on ETH, but you this new NFT hot NFT project launched on Solana, for example, and you wanna actually be getting some of that. So now you have to personally find an exchange or a bridge that will take your ETH, convert it to USDC, it's a pain in the ass to Solana. <laughs> Both put your orders on Tensor to get the NFT. There is a flow, right? But what if you can just say, go to a website or front end and say, oh, please make as many bids as possible to get me at least 10 of these hot NFTs. And the system will take care of that for you and can do all this in the back end and give you your NFT and maybe even bridge them back to Ethereum if you want, right? So it will make our lives easier. And I think intent become a hot word because we now have the technologies or we have the ideas to build that. Before, like two years back, we didn't have any of that infrastructure available. We didn't have bridges. We didn't have good decentralized networks to actually execute intents. But I think now we have multiple pieces that can put the puzzle together and we can do these activities. So this is my view. It will make Uh, us happier. I I have a big issue with this. It's just really annoying because what you just described as what intent is it's just a different word for better user experience, removing all the friction. But the technology that is bringing this is completely different on the back end. But the whole point of intent is for the users. Like I don't care about the, the technology. The, the purpose of the intent is to solve a problem for the user. What you just mm-hmm. described is simply saying, I want to remove all these points of friction for the user. And if we do that, if you manage to do that, the user experience is strictly better. However, in the case, in the example that David gave, gave earlier, intent is a limit order. And limit order is not strictly better than market order. It just gives you more options. There is a trade-off between the limit order and the market order. I well, think these I two mean, things are, are completely different. Strictly better than the market order. Because a limit order, if you set the price to infinity, becomes a, a market order. No, but, but the downside of the limit order is you have to put in one more number. Which is why sometimes I don't use the limit order. If the market is liquid, <laughs> I'll just I'll just send a fucking yeah, market yeah. order. So you ape in. <laughs> I just ape in. Yeah, exactly. So, so you go on Uniswap and you set your slippage to to infinite, right? <laughs> I've seen people get wrecked on Pepe for that. So I, I'm I'm confused by by the terminology here again. Like, what does intent even mean? Is, is it does it just mean removing friction for the user? If so, I mean it's just a buzzword. It's one of the use cases of intent. Like maybe you can consider intent is like uh, this vector. My description of it is use case that to make the user experience better. It depends on your intent. You can make your intent details very detailed, like very detailed that it's only executed the way that you want, but without friction from your side. So, so I I think this is like a perfect segue into talking about how. Are intents constructed from an infrastructure perspective? Because then I think it'll give you know our audience a better idea of like how this works in the background. There are a couple startups that are working on this, right? There's Anoma mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Suave. So maybe we could start with uh, Anoma, David. Can I just add something before we? Yes. This is the bigger companies or the bigger startups that work as intent as a whole system. But yeah. I see that. There are maybe tens or twenties or whatever of companies working on kind of intent-related stuff. Yeah. But they are not filling the whole picture. They are, don't want to build a system from the ground up to execute, execute intents. Anoma and Swap are. You're talking about like account abstraction, right? Like 4337? Not just account abstraction. Account abstraction, MEV solutions that give money back to the yeah. user, like Swap and all this stuff, uh, bridging and like trustless bridging that you don't need to. Uh, like, I maybe I'm looking holistically more than I should, but there are many, many startups that fill part of the intents uh, because as to David's point, intents exist now, actually. When you go front to end to Uniswap, it, that's an intent, right? Or to... Uh, yeah. But now we are taking this primitive or simple intents 
into really a more complex vision. Uh-huh. So there is a startups along this curve. As we go to the holistic vision, there are many startups. So this is just a yeah. quick interruption. Right. Yeah, I think I want to do like a segue to, to motivate Suave and, and Anoma. So yeah. uh, just to go back on, on Tiao's point, like, uh, is it just about user experience and, you know, Intense already here. Like, what's what's the big deal? Why are we making a new name for this? So, first point: Intense are still are already here. Like, you know, limit orders on on Dex aggregators exist, and they do improve user experience because if you've tried to put a put in a, a an order on on a Dex prior to Intent limit orders, it wasn't fun. Like, you would click the get the price. It would show you a price for like one second. And then sometimes yeah. it would just fail. And then sometimes you you can end up submitting the transaction and then it fails on chain. And the price like changes every second. And you're just like, okay, like just just give me a slightly worse price. Just but like I just want it to get go through, right? And in this particular case, the intent, the limit order was useful in bringing a better user experience. Okay, so now you got like slightly better user experience. But I think it's like at what cost? And the cost of this was that when you submitted this limit order, it was either you know one inch or paraswap or matcha. They held your limit order in their system. It was not something that was public in the mempool. It was something like very specific to their systems. And if they end up gathering a monopoly on this, like they do kind of had the incentive to screw you over at some point, right? If they get enough of a monopoly. And just to like motivate the upcoming conversation a little bit, like if we take the, the simple limit order and we think about how much work we've been doing across the decade to decentralize the limit order, we can think about like the first problem we had was, was ownership. What did we even trade, right? And Bitcoin solved that by providing a simple way to, to check provenance, the, the whatever you're receiving is not fake, right? It's, it was not double spent and things like that. When you're making a trade, like you, that's, that's an important component. The other important component is when you're making a trade, like you want to make sure that you receive the, the other thing that you're going to trade with your counterparty. You don't want to give out your asset and then like your counterparty say, oh, thanks, like that. Piecing out, right? And Ethereum was the first one that solved this problem, like with a with smart contracts, right? And now the last component of a of a limit order is that is is the price. Like, how do you make sure that you're not totally getting screwed on price? And the way to do that is to to broadcast your price to to shop for price first, and you know get the best price that that the market gives you. And to do that in a decentralized way, I don't think has been solved yet. And that's what all these intent projects are ultimately solving or trying to solve. In traditional markets, this role is solved by an exchange. Like you trust the exchange to do order matching for you so that like everybody gets the information at the same time so that the market can work for you. Mm -hmm. So. Are we rebuilding trend five <laughs> on 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 Web three now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we like ultimately all of this is rebuilding traditional components, but like we're decentralizing each and every part slowly, right? And it's going to be a better world. That's that's why we're here, right? Okay. Yeah. So we are moving to trade five in this in the terms of goals. We are kind of getting the same goals. But the infrastructure is different. And instead of trusting the, instead of trying, like the New York exchange, we are trust, we are not trusting anyone. We are just trusting that the system will work, essentially. Right. It's, it, I, I saw a good example and it was something akin to like paying for order flow with like Citadel, like mm-hmm. that pays for order flow with Robinhood. And now you have order flow that is essentially broadcasted to everyone. Or whoever are the solvers, and we'll we'll talk more about the, about the infrastructure side of like Suave and Noma. But essentially, you're broadcasting this order flow, whatever it is, and you have you know a bunch of solvers that are going to find the best execution path based on what the intent or ask is. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And they are mo- and the, the most important part is that you want them to be motivated to give you the best price because they are in competition with other solvers. Yeah. Yeah. Can we like, talk about solvers? Because you, ha- you guys have been mentioning this word for like yeah. the last 20 minutes. I don't know what it is. Let's the talk about the infrastructure. Know what it is. Let's yeah, let's it. talk about Suave and, and Anoma and how they work to start. I can start with Suave and David yeah. can cover Anoma. Uh, so Suave is an extension of what we know now as Flashbots or there's the next product. Flashbots started from a different problem, but they are moving now into the intent space. So they started as a MIF solution. They saw that MIF and gas auctions can destroy Ethereum, right? And so can you explain what MIF is just again, just so that for our audience? Okay. MEV is that is a, an inherent activity in any blockchain, especially Ethereum, because it has a lot of financial activity, which means that I can actually extract value from the network without having a directional position. So I don't have to trade, hold the ETH to get value, but instead I can see a transaction and I can run a transaction that goes after this one or before it or sandwich this transaction to make value and all my extraction happens in one block and done. So I make money quickly. So it's a kind of bot activity. Uh, and a simple example is that someone goes to Uniswap to trade big volume. I want to convert $1 million from USDC to ETH. So Uniswap is a stupid market maker system. It's a automatic market maker. So when you do the size of the trade, the price of Uniswap will change significantly depending on how big is your trade. But once it changes, it actually mismatches decentralized exchanges. So there is an opportunity for arbitrage. So you can run an arbitrage transaction between Uniswap and SX, or you can actually just background this transaction with another transaction to make money. You can extract MEV. MEV is that maximum extractive value. So that is the whole term for MEV. So MEV used to happen in a very bad way, which is people used to bid on gas. I will submit a transaction to the network with more gas, more fees essentially, to have my transaction run before you. So let's say, Imran, you found a good arbitrage opportunity. So you submitted a transaction on Ethereum. Now I want to beat you to this arbitrage opportunity. So I will submit the exact same transaction, but with higher gas. And now we ended up by many, many trans, many competing transactions. Only one of them will succeed. All of them, all the rest will fail, but the network performance will deteriorate anyway. So Flashbot came with this idea of, okay, let's take this, let's take this fight of a chain. <laughs> let's make this gas auction fight of a chain. We will create a marketplace where people who are actually capturing MEV can compete off a chain by submitting bids. And whoever wins will win the opportunity, but we didn't destroy the network. We didn't keep submitting bad transactions to the network. To be clear, why would that destroy the network? Remember that every transaction submitted to the network has to be communicated between all the nodes of the network, all the peer-to-peer nodes. So you submit a transaction, I see this transaction, but I, I am obligated to pass it to the network. So all the network consume bandwidth and processing to understand the transaction. Then the same transaction comes again 100 times, and we are circulating as a network this 100 transactions. At the end, only one of them are valuable, the ones that will succeed. 99 are just garbage that will destroy the network. Yeah. So that's why the, when we take this off a chain, this battle can happen off a chain, and only the winning transaction will be broadcasted on a chain. So this was the MIV auction or the Flashbot auction product. So they started that, and it got successful, and they captured millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars of MIV. But the question became, who is actually getting this map? Is it the user? Is the user making more money? No. It's actually these hundreds of millions were split between two, two entities. First is the uh, searchers, people who look for MEV, and validators are now called builders who actually order the transactions in this block. This kind of gave a sour taste for developers. What for are ser- Sorry, what are searchers for our audience? Searchers are someone like uh, David or Chow, who are like financial traders and can actually identify that they can make money, free money, essentially, by doing arbitrage or liquidations of assets or stuff like that. So they run a financial system, smart system to the side that actually monitors the chain and sees these transactions and say, oh, this is a good arbitrage opportunity. Let me quickly submit a transaction to capture this money. So... 
uh, we're speaking about good MEV. Let's not speak about ba- bad MEV, like front running and sandwich attacks, okay? So assuming that Chow and David are good people, they will do good MEV only. So, <laughs> there, so there's no will... such thing as good MEV or bad MEV. It's exactly. the market. It's not an ethical thing. I'm really, I'm done with this discussion. It's, it's not uh, a moral thing. Uh, okay, good point, good argument. But okay, let's say MEV. I will not add good MEV in front of it, just for you, Chow. Okay? So someone founds opportunity and run, is running a sophisticated system on the side to capture this. That's we, the term of we give this to these people are MEV searchers, okay? So we have the MEV searchers who are smart traders, and we have the validators who, at the end of the day, this is the ultimate authority of which transactions will be included on a chain, and what is the order of these transactions. So these two entities have compete, or like actually collaborate to yeah. capture MEV. So the revenue from that MEV is split between just two entities, searchers and validators or proposers now after. By the way, uh, we, we now know for a fact that some of the top searchers are also uh, validating blocks because that, that gives them a huge advantage. Yep. Yes. And this is what Flashbook expected. That because of the financial incentive, I can be a searcher and I can be a block builder and I can be validator. Why not? The more centralization, the more power I will have. And that's what it ultimately led Tom to the point that we started all of this discussion about swap. So what's swap? Swap is an effort or a vision to decentralize this even further. How? Instead of just splitting this myth between the searcher and the validator, let's create a system which actually gives some value back to the user. If a user is creating a transaction that will create the myth, Let's actually reward the user for this transaction by giving them some some part of this MEV back, or just giving his money back. Okay, so yeah, like cash back. Like you, when you go shop at uh, at at whatever for a hundred bucks, they give you one dollar back, right? Your credit card will give you one dollar back. So you can consider it like that. Wait, David has something to say. Uh, so wait, so what motivates the searchers plus the builders plus the validators? Like, what motivates them to give back to the uh, the user? Awesome question. Because the user, when they get pissed about losing this money, they can actually go to a certain block builders and actually cut the searcher out. They can say, you deal with the searcher. I will make my flow private. I will make all my transaction flow private. This transaction flow will not touch the mimbo. It will not see go even to a private marketplace. It will be just private. And we are seeing so many startups doing this we call them pay for order flow so like, you could also like change your rpc node right uh like when to, you, uh, you mean you mean flashbot protect for example flash, yeah exactly and but box route flash uh, flashbot protect is essentially that you are protecting your transaction from being in the mempool but you don't necessarily protect it from being in uh the private mempool of flashbot mm. like they can see it uh, or like unless you have guarantees that it's not, uh, I think, uh, Flashbot Protect doesn't include it in the private, uh, mempool, but many products actually include it in the private mempool to backrun it. Example here is Proxroute. They have a product called Backrun Me that your transaction will not touch the public mempool, but it will go to a private mempool where searchers will actually backrun this transaction, will make another transaction that goes after this transaction, and they capture some value from this smear and then share part of it to the user. So the user will have an incentive to make their order flow private. So instead of having this dynamic where where it's a winner takes all, if some one person, if some entity becomes a destination to get all the order flow, now we end up in a centralized scheme, right? I feel like... I feel mm-hmm. like right now we're in the fight for order flow, right? Like apps are like fighting for order flow. Wallets are fighting for order flow. Mm-hmm. And you have like new extensions that are coming out that are fighting for order flow. Yes. Yeah. So I guess like where does uh, like, I think the, the whole yeah. the whole like Suave, Anoma, and the, all this stuff is to make sure that the order flow gets distributed as widely as possible. Hundred percent. Right? And like the first implementation of Suave is. MEV share, right? And the way they do that is through a central matchmaker where the user through Flashbot Protect would send 
their order flow to this Flashbot API called the, the centralized uh, market uh, matchmaker. And the matchmaker will start talking to searchers and block builders and reveal, I think, like certain information and kind of gossip around so that it's in the best interest of the user. And us users are trusting this centralized component because it's like Flashbot and it's not like it's not it's not like a searcher to distribute this as widely as possible and like and and make the searchers compete to give you back as much MEV as possible. Right? Because like if a particular searcher says like, okay, I'll give him back like one dollar, and then the other the other searcher says, Oh, I'll give him back two dollars, like this bid will uh, benefit the end user. And there's like, this centralized matchmaker is not ideal, but this kind of shows like the, the, the difficulties in creating a system that solves in like decentralization of intents, right? Like there's another component inside of MEV share that's kind of weird. There's like a document that says, that's called the fair market principles that searchers and bundlers have to, have to follow and it's kind of like a pinky promise of like hey you will not unbundle this uh this thing and you will not um there's like a few th- other things but like to their credit it's like this is a very hard problem to solve right so that this is like their current iteration and and they have like more plans to you know suave is like a huge plan to to, to solve decentralization of intents. Yeah. So, Chao, we went for holds aside to be able to answer your question, right? You're asking what is solvers, right? This was your <laughs> question. So, <laughs> we are awesome, right? So, like, <laughs> this whole story is to explain what is solver. Solver now is exactly at, at this point. Now you have users submitting their transaction to a private pool for searchers. At this exact moment, searchers does, like, users doesn't have to submit a transaction anymore they can submit an intent instead. At this point, instead of a transaction saying, go to Uniswap, exchange one ETH to whatever, at this exact moment, they say, no, 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 I don't need to even specify the transaction. I can say an intent, and someone in this private pool will solve this intent for me. So I can say, swap one ETH to the largest USDC amount possible within the next five minutes. And I will throw this intent one of the searchers or one of their solvers, now they have been upgraded from searcher to a solver, will actually solve this intent to like give you your maximum amount of ETH that they can while capturing also some of the MEV, pocketing some money and sharing some money with the validator. So a solver is kind of an entity that can actually solve your intent and make money in the process. So, so I mean, it's just a different word for, for searcher. But Basically. yes, but, but the searcher has to do more in this case. The searcher is not just back running the transaction. The searcher now has to actually craft your transaction to begin with. Yeah. You didn't submit a transaction. So as a user, you didn't submit a transaction. You just give some vague requirement. The, it is the searcher now who drafts the transaction for you. So, like, so it's like an OTC desk. I, I, I tell the OTC desk, do this for me, and then they'll do whatever they can to... A decentralized OTC desk. Yeah. Maybe, you can, maybe you can coin this term, Cha. Why not? Like, like solver is a bad term. So decentralized... Uh, why why <laughs> can't we just reuse the same TradFi terms? It's, it'll be much... Yeah. MEV is really arbitrage, and the searchers is just trading market makers. This is a new world. Is this is a new world. <laughs> we have to be unique. Come on. <laughs> So yeah. for our audience, just so that we have like a summary of what's been happening. So intents are what users uh, express what they want, not how they get it, right? Yes. Uh, and intents are ultimately like programmatic. Solvers are essentially searchers that will execute your intent and they will put in the trans, they will conduct the transaction on your behalf. And yeah, so I would say that's where we're at so far. That's we are going to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, th- th- yeah. In terms of our conversation right now, this is like yes. kind of where we're mm-hmm. at. We still have a lot to peel back, right? Yes. Um, but that's kind of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. So, where does Anoma fit into the picture, and how how is it different from Suave? I know the white paper is extremely hand wavy, but yeah, let's do our best to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah. So earlier, when I when I said the 
ultimately the problem is in decentralizing this process. Anoma is a very ambitious project which aims to do like generalized intents, right? So like DEX aggregators right now do a very specific intent. It's like the it's like ERC twenty limit orders, right? But you can imagine limit orders for NFTs, or you can like imagine cross chain limit orders and you know account abstraction with with the EIP forty three thirty seven can also be seen as intents, and they have like a very specific format of intents. Anoma wants to like first have a generalized definition of intents. So I think one of their um, GitHub repos is uh, Juvix. And that's like a language to specify intents with the ability to decide which part of the intent is private because that's, that will determine the balance of powers in, in, in users between users and searchers. So there's like a lot of ZK tech that's being integrated into the intent specification language, Juvix. And they also have like threshold encryption, right? I don't even know what threshold encryption is. <laughs> Me neither. I can explain it, but Fude, if you want to explain it too. Imran, if you have the log diagram of Anoma handy, uh, you can bring it up and we can actually take an, a step in explaining what's Anoma because it's a kind of quite complicated. I guess uh, I'll continue yeah. a little bit because like, yeah, go ahead. Anoma was, you know, I, I just talked about Juvix, the, the language for specifying what intents are, right? And, and like integrating privacy parts in, into it. When you say language, you mean actually a programming language like Java. It's ultimately going to be the declarative language of like specifying what what you even want. Um, right? Yeah, they're, they're, like very, they're like very mega brain, right? Um, wow. Like a generalized intent specification. And then there's like Taiga, a project, like a sub-project of Onoma that specifies like the system or the protocol that, that resolves intents into atomic state transitions, aka transactions. Right? It's like their specification of how to distribute uh, these intents, how to uh, do gossiping between um, searcher, not searcher solvers, and how do they how do they incentivize the propagation of your intents and stuff like that. And then there's like Namada, another subproject of Anoma. And that's like an L1 that's related to privacy. And I don't really know where it fits in. But ultimately, like Anoma is supposed to be able to be a layer above all of the settlement layers, like Ethereum, Solana, whatever, where you can like solve the intents and then settle on these blockchains. So I'm, I'm not super sure where Nevada comes in. I'll have to do more research there. But the, I guess the interesting part about Anoma is that they're creating this generalized like intent platform, right? Mm-hmm. And you have solvers, and then they have like private mempools, which is like threshold encryption, right? They encrypt, decrypt uh, intents, they order intents, and then they execute the intents. So uh, Fuda is sharing a screen. So maybe Fuda, this is like the best part to talk about is just like how does this all look like on? Yeah, uh, this is actually so let, like let's a, talk about this. Yeah, this is one of the few block diagrams in Anoma. Uh, white paper, but actually it, it captures the whole story here. Yeah, the part that uh, David explained is exactly what the first part, which is they call the counterpart discovery. As a user, you bring intent, and this intent can be a private transaction, transparent transaction, or whatever, right? So it can be even private or transparent. Then you have some network that will actually share this intent between them together, so they will gossip this intent to for everyone to know about it. And then comes the beloved entity for Chao, which is the solvers. Solvers will take this intent and create transaction. After that comes a part that you mentioned, Imran, which is a, a threshold encryption. The solver now have decoded the intent and created a transaction that executes intent. Now we want to kind of hide these details after all to provide anyone from reordering these transactions. So what happens is that the user comes something called threshold encryption uh, using this uh, distributed key cryptography, they encrypt the transactions. No one can see the transactions anymore. And then they put this in the mempool. They put this transaction in the transaction mempool. The proposer will take CC transactions. They don't know what is the content, but they see transactions with some fees. So they order them. They send it to the validator to execute. 
So now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Mempool validators proposer. These are not Ethereum mempool or proposer validators. These are the Anoma mempool proposer and validators. Correct? Yes. Threshold encryption is not compatible with uh, with Ethereum right now. So this for in this pool diagram, this is Anoma transaction mempool proposer and validator. If you want to use Ethereum, then you will have to give away the encryption. You will have to give these transactions as transparent uh, to, to be able to use Ethereum. So yes, for both this block diagram, these are Onoma, proposal validator, everything. So Onoma is its own blockchain. Yes. Yeah. And so as a swap. So so and swap as well is its own blockchain blockchain. But, uh, if but I... swap will settle to Ethereum. This reminds me of the uh, Oprah meme, layer ones for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we decentralized and uh, increase throughput by adding more blockchains, right? We, we started just before. So if I were an Ethereum user and I sign an Ethereum transaction, or not transaction, but intent, okay, can the intent go through a, a Noma and then ultimately settle on Ethereum? Yes, it can go, but until only the solver phase. So the solver phase will convert the intent into an Ethereum transaction. And instead of using the rest of this block diagram, they will can broadcast this transaction now into the Ethereum mempool. So in or, that scenario, on this picture, the consensus and execution verification, these are replaced by Ethereum consensus, Ethereum execution. Exactly. Okay. But the catch here is that you need some guarantees that the builder and validator will not reorder these transactions or they will not front run these transactions. So they will not maybe change the intent even further. But this is kind of where the guarantee. Anoma in this block diagram, by encrypting the transactions, they prevent anyone from messing with them after that. Like, because they don't see what's happening. They will have to just reorder order them the way they come to, a, to, the, uh, to the proposal, right? Uh, and this so is the competition kind of, happens on the intent side then, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, the MIF capture, the creating the transaction, all of this happens at the solver. So the solver is the main character in this system. Yeah. The proposal just submits the blocks, gets the inflation reward of the block, end of the story. So this is the Enoma vision. Um, so this is kind of where the Enoma system kind of works, or the, at least the high level of it, because uh, David actually did a great detail of which each component of this component and how it works. Yeah, it's um, there is not uh, that much like publicly consumable details on uh, each of these components. So it's hard to, uh, like, unless you're a very active part of the, the research team and, like, part of the, the group, then uh, it's hard to exactly understand how it works. And also, it's probably years away, too. But just to illustrate the, the difficulty of, of what they're trying to do is on the other side, you know, account abstraction also has a very specific format of intents and they also have this problem of like um of solvers and the way they the way they solve these problems is to like really restrict what their version of intents can do and in the account abstraction world it's called uh you know these are called user ops so they so they remove the ability to specify a few opcodes they remove the ability for you to access state that is changeable or and things like that, so that your user ops cannot DDoS the, the solvers. Because if you want a permissionless pool of uh, user ops intents, the two parties have to work together. The user cannot DDoS the, the system, and the system has to compete to, to solve your intent, to, to, to get your intents. Wait, so account abstraction is also part of Anoma, or is it, is it separate? Account abstraction, like ERC forty three thirty seven, is like was was I think was specified a long time ago before the, before the word intent even was even uh, a thing. I think like the word intent just captures the general concept of specifying a desired state change without a concrete transaction. Okay, so so but I think. I think account abstraction is critical for intents because if you craft a transaction on behalf of the user, the user have to go and sign it, but you don't want any interaction from the user anymore. So I think account abstraction is a way for you to 
after you get the intent and solve it to craft the craft the transaction and use the signature from the user to sign the transaction without the transaction without the user resigning the transaction. All right, so guys, think- can we can we define account abstraction first? Because I don't think we've ever talked about account abstraction before. Yes. So the audience needs to know what it means, and then <laughs> we could spend as much time as we need. But um, <laughs> we need to understand what it is, and then yeah. how it relates to uh, intents. Account abstraction is a big term, actually. Uh, I think I can give the umbrella term explanation, and like then we can go to, to the details of uh, Fortis three thirty seven because yep. it's uh, important. And then we should also talk about, so, sorry, Vitalik's paper, he talks about smart contract wallets as one of the big paradigm shifts for Ethereum. So maybe touching on what this all means at the end. Okay. Sorry. Accounts on Ethereum has two types. There was a type that we know, which is externally owned account that has a private key and beautiful. You, you import this private key into MetaMask and then you sign every transaction from your externally EOA, externally, externally owned account. Okay. That's a problem with this type is that you cannot actually delegate actions to user. You cannot say, oh, this user can create a transaction for me or can do this action on my behalf because you cannot, this, this account is not programmable. It just signs. That's it. So account abstraction means that, uh, you want a, a little bit more smart wallet or a smart account that can program, that can be a program that you can actually say, Oh, I will delegate Imran to vote for me. I delegate Chow to transact on my behalf on Uniswap. I can delegate David to buy NFTs for me. And all of this is part of the wallet. I want to define all of this logic in the wallet. So luckily enough, we have smart contracts. So you can make a smart contract wallet where you can actually, your wallet is a smart contract. You put your money in smart contract and you can define this logic or conditions or whatever you want in the smart contract itself. So you can add programmable wallet. There is some technical details that I don't want to touch, but essentially speaking, like smart contracts also are limited. They cannot pay for their own gas, which is funny. Smart contracts have need an account to pay for their gas. So this is how Ethereum started and this is how Ethereum operates until today. Right. So if you want a programmability, you don't you need an account to pay for the gas. If you want to have private key, then you don't have programmability. It is this situation. Right. So account abstraction is an effort to abstract all this mess and give you an account that is programmable, that can actually delegate action, that can actually uh, define functionalities that other people do in your behalf. So okay. this is how I define account abstraction. So David, right. do you disagree with that? <laughs> Yeah, so account abstraction was originally like a very user experience focused EIP, right? And and the the result of this of trying to get to this goal was that transactions would not like things that come out of the user would not be transactions anymore because they they would not have a a ECDSA signature, they would not pay gas possibly, right? Um, so the fact that these things were not transactions anymore is what why right now we kind of say uh, user ops are are intense, right? Because these things have to be turned into transactions at some point. And just because these things are not transactions anymore, it revealed a lot of difficulties in like how do you integrate with the rest of the Ethereum system? Because like who turns these things into uh, transactions. It's like solvers or bundlers or where, whatever you want to call them. And it turns out that if you like specify your user ops in like a, a weird way, these solvers might not want to take in your transactions because you could DDoS them and, and do things that grief them, right? And the solution that ERC4337 came up is pretty complicated. Like they had to restrict what can go into a user op restrict uh, what data it can access. And it also introduced a, a reputation system and staking, like all these components just to solve the problem of decentralizing the, um, like the, the user op pool. Instead of the mempool, you have the user op pool. It's like a different pool of... Uh, Which is called a bundler, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought of something. I just—I don't know if this is going to move the conversation a bit, but 
how does this impact security? Because I know security is such a big problem in the space from phishing scams and et cetera. How does like a construction and more broadly intense solve this problem of security? Because right now, like if you think about hackers, they can fish, you know, users and force them to conduct a transaction that would ultimately give them access to their entire wallet, right? So I'm just thinking from like a UI UX perspective, does how does it impact security generally? So you're speaking about security of smart contract wallets or or what exactly? Of smart contract wallets, uh, intents also, like uh, generally speaking intents, because now that the user isn't conducting the, the actual transaction and the solvers are, how does that impact security at a broadly, broader scale? And security meaning like fish, phishing scams and, and et cetera. For, for phishing scams particularly, like I think intents are a lot more, a lot easier to, to, to kind of verify and display because ultimately you're, you're, you're looking at like, what do I want? It's like the, the starting state, the end state, like, is this what your intent is? And then you can say yes or no. It's, you're not like signing a transaction that uh, is possibly complicated and yeah. then t- trying to tell if that's going to have the effect that you want. Um, on the other side, like account abstraction enables non-ECDSA permissions. So you can like use a secure enclave in your iPhone or uh, Android to, to, to sign transactions. You can have two-factor authentication. Basically, like whatever security methods that are out there, you could technically implement. Okay, so... And just to touch on this, um, account abstraction enables better security through uh, features like um, signing with your uh, two-factor authentication from your phone or uh, from the the secure enclave of the phone. Aside from security, what else does it enable in terms of user experience? There's more things. For me, um, I think it enables defining of intents. You remember, you know, when you go to a website and you sign a message saying, I am the owner of this account? You can actually sign your intent from your from your account abstraction, saying that I am, I want to do that activity, and here is my condition, and you sign this, and this is becomes a signed intent. So it cannot be fetched. It cannot be some someone cannot fix the intent for you, and then solvers will take this intent that is signed by you and execute it. Um, but because you give them, you will have to give them validity to create transaction on your behalf. So. I think that is a critical part that I. Um, that but this I, is still security, right? Mm-hmm. This is still this is still security. I I, th- I think account abstraction enables some. It, it can help to remove uh, friction as well. Account abstraction can enable a lot of stuff. Like if you are speaking about the user experience in general, yeah, you can forget about private keys. As a user, will not see private keys or seed phrases anymore. That's one aspect. I think David touched like, on that. Because I've seen people talk about account abstraction better enabling um, gasless transactions or batching transactions. You know, these things will fundamentally improve user experience, right? Yes. Pay it's just better well, if you don't have to sign every transaction, like sign a transaction upon every action. It's better if you don't have to to have like a, a small amount of ETH in your wallet in order in order to, to sign a transaction, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, the dApps could pay for the gas fees for the user, and so that could be also abstracted away. Yeah, yeah. it all comes to the implementation of the smart contract wallet. The account abstraction approach is just to create a framework for how people can just create their smart contract wallet to enable some of these features or or other. Like, it's not, it's not one size fits all. Like, smart contract wallet can actually have different implementation that some of them will enable features that are not supported by the other, like uh, social recovery, using secure enclaves, stuff like uh, using Baymasters or stuff like that. It depends. Or paying in, in other currency other than ETH. I think this comes down to the implementation of the smart contract wallet itself. So now I, I think our users have a good understanding of account abstraction. We talked about Anoma and Suave. Where do we go from here? What should founders be thinking about in the space? And if we've missed any conversation about Anoma and Swab that you'd like to add, please feel free to do so. Um, if not, you know, maybe we can segue into like how founders should be thinking about building the space. Yeah, I can, I can say a few things there um, for uh, dApp builders. Seeing the evolution of uh, trading dApps, DAX aggregators, you know, one thing that Paradigm's article at the end uh, mentioned is that when you go towards this system of using intents instead of transactions to interact with your DAP, you're 
inevitably going to run into the problem of either centralizing the, the solver component or trying to decentralize it. And th your decision there is going to impact, I guess, the way, the way blockchains grow in the future. Why does this centralize the solvers? Why, why does the intent-based system centralize solvers? It's not like you have the choice. It, it's always easy. It's always easy to, to, to go towards an, a, a centralized solution. I see. Yeah, the the natural tendency of centralizing things because mm -hmm. and when you when you permission like specific solvers to to do this job, you are basically giving all away all of the the value to them, and if your app is super successful, it gives an an, an edge into like ah. your part of the network. It's a it's a pretty like far out yeah concern. So it is there. Yeah. So what you're saying is like essentially like DApps would lose their like stickiness to solvers and solvers will have more of a moat or control of where transactions can flow through, right? Is what yeah, you're saying? Like, like DApps have the ability to like DApps that, that generate a lot of MEV have the ability to funnel that towards particular solvers if they choose the centralized yeah. and those solvers slash builders, validators uh, you know, grow, and that's like not some. That's like not the the ethos of crypto. Because solvers they do um, something fairly sophisticated, so there is a natural tendency for one or few of them to stand out to do much better right. than everyone else. Right, to but you offer don't want, better service. Right, but you don't want you don't want DApps to be the ones choosing who is allowed to even attempt the solving. You want the solving to be to be free. And open to anyone who who wants to to try it out. Yeah. The analogy I can think of is um, before FTX, um, Genesis was basically the de facto solver of the entire crypto <laughs> centralized crypto. Uh, the retail users don't interact directly with Genesis, but in, they interact with let's say BlockFi or some other lending platform. But the flow ultimately all goes to Genesis. Which is the the centralized solver because they offer better better service. But anyway, I don't know if it's a perfect analogy, but it might be a helpful analogy. Puda, your, yeah. your thoughts on like how builders should be thinking about the space? Like uh, you know, let's say I'm building my own DApp right now in DeFi. Yes. Well, like, so, how should I? How how should this concern me? What should I be thinking about? As builders, uh, especially application builders, uh, not infrastructure builders, like. Actually, you need to be able, very aware of all these trends. Um, like if you are building an app now that doesn't support account abstraction, you are in a bad spot. You have to, you, uh, if you are building a DeFi protocol, an NFT protocol, you have to have it in your head to support smart contract wallets and account abstraction from the get go. Maybe you can even run your own paymaster that users pay you to sponsor the smart contract transaction. That is one. Uh, Maybe even start educating your users about intents and uh, how or MEV and how to capture this MEV. And I think many protocols are starting to work on that. We have seen protocols integrating with solutions like Wallet Chain to capture the MEV and give it back to the user. We have seen companies come together to build MEV Blocker, which is uh, an RPC node that users can actually use to capture part of their MEV. We have seen MEV Share from Flashbots. So I think. This is a major change of the user experience. So getting users used to this solution is one step, gets us one step closer to using intents when the user will not submit transactions anymore, but will submit intents. So again, as a, as a app developer, find what is the best solution that can give the best execution to your users and integrate it with your, with your app, whether it's, it's a DeFi protocol or, uh, an F NFT, Protocol or whatever. For builders who are starting to build something new in this space, we have actually seen a lot of, we are seeing a lot of opportunities in this space about decentralizing MEV, actually building the best implementations for account abstractions or solvers, all that stuff. So there is a lot of opportunities for builders coming into the space to build the protocols. And we are continuously add these ideas to our request for startups because we need builders who are actually tackling real problems. I'm actually playing devil's advocate because I don't have a strong opinion. But the example that David gave earlier 
about DEX aggregators or Uniswap, their front end already enables intent. So on Uniswap, you can specify how much slippage. To me, this is a pretty okay solution to my intent. What is exactly the problem that we're, we're trying to solve with this intent architecture? Like, what is a specific problem that we haven't solved that can be solved? To me, it's, it's always the decentralization problem. Like, you can do everything in a centralized way if you wanted to, right? Like, you can, you can go on centralized exchanges, you do your limit orders there, right? But the, the reason why we're doing this on the blockchain is because we all share this vision of decentralization. And just to take, to expound the, the Uniswap thing, when you submit a, a transaction on Uniswap right now with V3, the inputting your order actually goes through the Uniswap solver router that decides how to split your order into Uniswap pools. So in a sense, like that's, that's like a tiny version of uh, an intent architecture. And it is a centralizing point, right? You're sending all the orders to the Uniswap router API first, and then it tells you the transaction that you're going to be submitting to the blockchain. But if Uniswap wanted to fuck you, how do they fuck you? They could give you a horrible routing. Literally right now, they could if they wanted to. But there's very little incentive for them to, to do this, right? Like, right. It's based on reputation, right? Solvers will have a bigger intent because they can run transactions on their own that amend your transaction. So the, the worse your execution gets, the better money they will make on Mer. So that is where solvers like outside of Uniswap can be actually more dangerous. <laughs> but I also think like intents are composable, right? Which I think is a very important part since they are like decentralized like limit orders. And the way I see this is like going from one layer one to another layer one and getting the best pricing for it. You can't do that right now in Uniswap and these like localized intent, you know, based platforms like Uniswap. So I, d- I do think more largely it's going to solve, you know, larger, more complex problems that we don't see today. Mm-hmm. I just don't see a strong pain point. I don't see what pain point is solving. My pain point with Uniswap is not losing like $100 on MEV. Uniswap is a per- perfectly fine product to me. What I... What, what decentralization enables for me personally is if I have this amount of ETH on chain, I know that no one else can steal it. And if I want to swap it for some other token, I can use Uniswap without KYC and that removes friction for me. These are the two things that decentralization solves for me. It's not a hundred dollars of MEV. I don't, I don't care. And I think we just have to wait more for the uh, ecosystem to mature to see like actual, like more broadly, the use cases that come out of intent based products. But maybe we could leave this for part two as more and more builders are building the space and see where where this goes. Um, because I think this this conversation can go on for hours. And I would love it for it to go on for hours, but I think our audience will just get sick of our voices. <laughs> um, so we could probably take this offline, Chow. Outside of that, I, I know we're at time. Uh, listeners, thank you again for joining us. Hit subscribe if you haven't. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Good Game. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.